I learned a new word this week, eucatastrophe. That's spelled E-U-catastrophe. It's a, it's a great word to introduce our sermon text today. It's, it's a word coined by the Christian writer J.R.R. Tolkien, who you might know as the author of The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. But, but actually, he once worked for the Oxford English Dictionary. He loved words. So eucatastrophe is a, is a combination of the word, you know, catastrophe, a sudden turn, and the prefix you, which means good. So according to Wikipedia, a eucatastrophe is a, a sudden turn of events in a story which ensures that the protagonist does not meet some terrible impending, and very plausible and probable doom. So it's a, a sudden and favorable resolution of events in a story. It's, a, it's the guarantee of a happy ending. Tolkien calls it the defining mark of a good story. We love to read of happy endings because of how it makes us feel, of the, the hope that it gives I'm sure that for your own life, the story of your life, whether this chapter or the whole thing, you long to have a you catastrophe. You know, we in our lives cannot avoid catastrophe. Life turns in ways that we can never expect. But what confidence do we have that that at each turn it will be a you catastrophe and not what he calls a discatastrophe of sorrow and failure. Well, this is what we will be considering in our sermon text this morning, Genesis 45:16 through 46:27, the restored brother and the sovereign God. If you have a Bible, I encourage you to open with me there, Genesis 45 starting in verse 16. Let me commend to you the best way to stay engaged is to keep that Bible open and to follow along as we go. You can find that on page 39 of the Bibles provided for you there in the pew rack. Genesis 45, 16 to 46, 27, the restored brother and the sovereign God. As you turn there, let me introduce myself. My name is Kelton. I have the the privilege of serving as one of the elders here of Stafford Baptist Church. I would love to greet you in the lobby afterwards, so please come, come find me and let me get to know you. We have spent the last few months studying the end of Genesis, the tenth and, and final section of this book, the story of the sons of Jacob. And it has been a story of catastrophe after catastrophe. Joseph hated and sold by his brother, brothers into slavery. Of, of deception, of false imprisonment, of international famine. But the story has a catastrophe. Joseph given wisdom to interpret dreams, elevated to the, the right hand of Pharaoh to save lives. And through testing, his, his brothers have shown evidence of their repentance. And in chapter 45, what we studied last... Joseph has finally revealed his identity and reconciled with his brothers. We last left the brothers in Egypt with Joseph, rejoicing in one another. You might think that's the the happy ending to the story. Brothers reconciled at peace once more. But there is still that problem of the famine, isn't there? As important as their reconciliation was, it won't do any good if they all starve. And then there is the fact that the brothers have to go back to their father to tell Jacob that, in fact, they have been lying to him for the past 22 years about what happened to Joseph, that he is alive and Lord of all of Egypt. So the story of the sons of Jacob is is coming to its conclusion with an epilogue to follow. And what we, what we have here in our passage this morning is that the eucatastrophe of this true story is thanks to the faithfulness 
of the one and true sovereign God. In, in our passage, we will hear God's recorded speech for the first time since Genesis 35, which is something like 30 years. And here in God's speech, there particularly at the beginning of chapter 46, it is remarkably similar to what he said back in Genesis 35. It is the same promise to Jacob that he received all those years ago to make him into a great nation. Despite all the years, God's purposes have not changed. Despite all the twists and turns, God is faithful. The you catastrophe of the true story of the sons of Jacob is because God is faithful to his promise to work out all the good that he has promised to them. God will provide for all their needs and continue to make them into a nation. And the same is true for all of us who are in Christ. The, the you catastrophe of all of history is the, the birth the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And because of his death for sinners, we can trust that God will provide and all that, is, all that is necessary for his people. We are going to start today by reading the, the entire passage, after which I will lead us in a prayer, asking God to help us to believe and obey his word. So let's read of God's faithfulness in Genesis 45, starting in verse 16. When the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers have come, it pleased Pharaoh and his servants. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, say to your brothers, do this, load your beasts and go back to the land of Canaan and take your father and your households and come to me and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt and you shall eat the fat of the land. And you, Joseph, are commanded to say, do this, take wagons from the land of Egypt For your little ones and for your wives, and bring your father and come. Have no concern for your goods, for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. The sons of Israel did so. And Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh and gave them provisions for the journey. To each and all of them he gave a change of clothes, but to Benjamin he gave 300 shekels of silver and five changes of clothes. To his father he sent as follows, ten donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt, and ten female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and provision for his father on the journey. Then he sent his brothers away, and as they departed he said to them, Do not quarrel on the way. So they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan, to their father Jacob. And they told him, Joseph is still alive, and he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his heart became none, for he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, It is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Then Jacob set out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob their father, their little ones, and their wives in the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan, and came into Egypt, Jacob and all his offspring with him. His sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters, all his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. Now these are the names of the descendants of Israel who came into Egypt, Jacob and his sons. Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, and the sons of Reuben, Hanok, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi, the sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Shaul, the sons of a Canaanite woman. The sons of Levi, 
Gershon, Kohath, and Merari, the sons of Judah, Er, Onan, Shelah, Perez, and Zerar. But Er and Onan died in the land of Canaan. And the sons of Perez were Hezron and Hamul. The sons of Issachar, Tola, Puva, Job, and Shimron. The sons of Zebulun, Sered, Elon, and Jehiel. These are the sons of Leah, whom she bore to Jacob in Padam Aran, together with his daughter Dinah. Altogether, his sons and his daughters numbered 33. The sons of Gad, Ziphion, Haggai, Shunai, Ezbon, Erai, Erodai, and Ereli. The sons of Asher, Imna, Ishva, Ishvi, Bariah with Sarah, their sister. And the sons of Bariah, Heber, and Malchali. These are the sons of Zilpah, whom Laban gave to Leah his daughter, and these she bore to Jacob sixteen persons. The sons of Rachel, Jacob's wife, Joseph and Benjamin. And to Joseph in the land of Egypt were born Manasseh and Ephraim, whom Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, the priest of On, bore to him. And the sons of Benjamin, Bela, Becher, Ashbel, Gera, Naaman, Ehi, Rosh, Mupin, Hupim, and Arid. These are the sons of Rachel, who were born to, the, to Jacob, fourteen persons in all. The sons of Dan, Hushim, the sons of Naphtali, Jehaz, Jaziel, Guna, Jezer, and Shilam. These are the sons of Bilhah, whom Laban gave to Rachel, his daughter, and these she bore to Jacob, seven persons in all. All the persons belonging to Jacob who came into Egypt, who were his own descendants, not including Jacob's sons' wives, were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. The word of the Lord. Please pray with me for God's help in in believing and obeying his word. Let's, Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, it is right for us to, to come to you and, and ask of you for grace to believe and obey. Lord, today as we consider Jacob, who, who long ago you provided for, who you were present with, who you gathered and, and built, Lord, we pray today that we would see your faithfulness. Or that we too with Jacob would have grace to relieve our fears. That we would have, have grace as we have been through many dangers, toils, and snares. That you would give us grace to lead us home. That we would have the confidence this morning that, that we will one day be with you. Having spent 10,000 years singing your praises with no fewer days ahead. Lord, we pray that, that you would do all this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, for his glory and for our eternal good. Amen. What's the, the main idea of our passage this morning in one sentence? Our big idea today is this, that we are to trust that our sovereign God is faithful to provide all that is necessary for all of his people. We are to trust that our sovereign God is faithful to provide all that is necessary for all of his people. At the heart of our passage is is God's faithfulness to his promise. All the way back to to Abram, the first heir of God's promise, and now it's third generation to Jacob. God had promised to Abram to make of him a great nation and to bless him. And God is still faithful to that promise. Because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, not only for Abram and Jacob, we too can trust that our sovereign God is faithful to provide all that is necessary for all of his people. We are going to have three points today to explore this passage. Three points. First, God provides for his people. That in the the last part of of, uh, Genesis 45, verses 16 through 24. Second, God is present with his people, starting in 45.25 all the way through 46.7. God is present with his people. And finally, God promises to build his people. That's the the genealogy we have in 46.8 through 27. God provides for his people. God is present with his people. And God promises to build his people. Well, then let's turn to the start of our passage 
In chapter 45, verse 16, in our first point, brothers and sisters, God provides for his people. God provides for his people. Just to remind you of context, we're picking up here in the middle of the chapter. Joseph has made the great revelation back in the beginning of chapter 45. There in the first verse, he could no longer control himself, no longer able to conceal himself to his brothers with loud tears of joy. He there was able to extend forgiveness and compassion to his brothers despite their, their great evil because he had rock-solid confidence that God was at work even in the midst of evil. He reiterated there at the beginning of the chapter three times, God sent me here to Egypt. Yes, mankind, his brothers have agency, responsibility for their actions, but God works all things according to the counsel of his will. To accomplish his purpose. God sent me here. Well, verse 15 ends with the the great scene of their reconciliation. Weeping, kissing, and talking freely with one another. You might remember from from our last time in Genesis 45 that that what he offers there in verses 10 and 11. Joseph has, has told his brothers to go back to Jacob, their father, and tell him to come down and settle in the land of of Goshen. He has made a generous offer. Lest we forget, the the predicted famine is only just in its second year. There are five years remaining of of famine. And furthermore, as powerful as Joseph is, he is still only in Egypt second in command. There is, of course, the question of, of what will Pharaoh do? Will he... Agree with his generous offer to, to bring in to his nation Jacob and his family. So there are still matters for us to settle. And that is how our passage begins in verse 16. What we read in verse 16, Pharaoh is glad to hear of Joseph's brother's coming. So he makes Joseph two commands there. First in verse 17, to tell his brothers to go back with provisions to get their father and come to take the best of the land of Egypt. The second command there in verse 19, tell the brothers to take wagons so they can bring their their whole families with them into Egypt. And both times, in verses 18 and 20, Pharaoh offers to them the best of the land. Lord willing, next week we'll think more about that land as they get settled when they arrive in the land in chapter 47. But, but now let us consider, why would a pagan king make such a generous offer to Joseph's family? Well, clearly he has plenty of reason to be grateful to Joseph, by whom his entire nation was saved from starvation. But of course, Joseph would tell us, as he already has to Pharaoh, it is not in me. Right? It is God. God has shown to Pharaoh what he was about to do. The credit goes to God. God is at work through a a pagan king to provide for his people. This might feel familiar to you. If you've studied much in the book of Genesis, this is exactly what happened to Abram when he went down to Egypt. In Genesis 12, also during a famine, of course, he there lied about Sarah being his sister. But this is what Genesis 12:16 tells of his journey to Egypt. Genesis 12:16 says, And for Sarah's sake, Pharaoh dealt well with Abram. And Abram had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. There again, God providing for his people through a pagan king. And again, God doing that now in the life of Jacob. So in verses 21 and following the the sons depart, Joseph provides wagons and provisions for the way home. He also gives to each brother a change of clothing, but but to, uh, to the youngest, to his brother Benjamin, five changes of clothing with plenty of silver. This might be a symbol of their reconciliation, new clothes. Verse 23 records the gift for their father. Twenty donkeys total, ten with food for their journey, and ten simply, it says, with the good things of Egypt. 
But before they go, in verse 24, the warning, do not quarrel on the way. He knows his brothers. Don't try to blame one another or justify yourself. What we have here in in our passage is God again showing his faithfulness to his promise all the way back to, to Abram to bless him. It's what we read in Genesis 12, 16 of his blessing there in, in Egypt. He had done the same to Isaac when he was in Gerar. We read in Genesis twenty six twelve, Isaac sowed in that land, that is in Gerar, and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him. And the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. This is also what Jacob himself previously had known when he was with Laban, tending his flocks. Genesis 30, verse 43. Thus the man, that is Jacob, increased greatly and had large flocks, female servants and male servants, and camels and donkeys. I read you that, brothers and sisters, to show you that God is relentlessly faithful to his promise generation after generation And that even through pagans. But come to think about why, why would Joseph send the good things of Egypt to Canaan when they are supposed to just load up, turn around, and head right back to Egypt? You know, they already have ten donkeys loaded with the provisions that they need for the journey. Well, I think these ten additional donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt are... Something of a down payment, if you will. Or if you prefer a a flight. You know, you can go down to the Blue Cow Ice Cream in Fredericksburg and you can get a flight. A smaller serving of four different flavors. It's a preview of the bounty in the freezers. It's a preview of what awaits them in Egypt. And it will be, soon be part of the package when it arrives in Canaan that convinces that, that Jacob is indeed alive and reigning in, in Egypt. And saints, I can't help but think of how this parallels the offer of the gospel. The gospel also includes an invitation, like what Joseph sends to Jacob, To come live in the king's country. To be saved from the threat of death and live near him. But for now, we're just on the journey. God has sent ahead with the invitation everything we need for the journey. Our journey toward the celestial city. The riches of that kingdom are still ahead of us. But along with the provision for the journey, he has sent the down payment of greater treasures that await us. If you are this morning in Christ by faith, you have immeasurable riches, salvation from the wrath to come, reconciliation with your heavenly Father, peace and comfort that cannot be taken from you in this world. Because Jesus died on the cross, suffering the punishment for all those who will trust in his death, your sins are today forgiven. But salvation is still to come. This is only a foretaste, a flight, if you will, of the feasts to come. Our justification is is fixed. We are now, today, legally righteous before God because of Christ's death for the saints. But our sanctification is still ongoing. We are being saved, becoming more holy in our behavior and desires, not in our legal standing. And finally, ultimate and, and final salvation in the new heavens and the new earth is yet to come. Glorification, when we are made perfect, sin is no more, awaits the coming age. Christian, everything you need for life and godliness has been given to you by God's grace. But this is just the flight of ice cream before the true feasts of heavenly fellowship in the perfection of the new creation. And I I think this knowledge should, brothers and sisters, give us freedom from the love of money, from the love of things that is so prevalent in our fallen world. 
We can, in, in the words of verse 20, have no concern for our goods because the best of the land of heaven is offered to us, is before us. We read of this early in, in Matthew 6, where Jesus calls on his disciples. He calls on us to lay up for ourselves treasures not on earth, but in heaven. He calls us not to be anxious because, as he says, all these things, like food and clothing, will be added to us. He sends the donkeys to us with all that we need for the journey toward our home in heaven. We don't need to worry nor, nor gather the treasures of this world because God will provide all that we need and the imperishable, undefiled, unfading treasures of heaven are kept for us. Christian, if, if I were to look at your bank statement, could I tell that you were investing in heaven? Does your level of worry reflect trust in Jesus' promise that your heavenly Father knows what you need? What you need. The letter to the Hebrews says, Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Why? For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Are you content because you have God? The greatest down payment of the gospel and the power by which we can be content is the spirit by whom God is present with us. The best taste of that flight of ice cream for us now is communion with God, but we await its fullness in the age to come, in His kingdom, the new heaven and the new earth. God is with you, saint, on the journey. And that is enough, no matter what else you might think you lack. And this is exactly what we see God promise Jacob himself next. In our second point, God is present with his people. Number two, God is present with his people. The sons in, in Israel, in, in verse 25, go up out of Egypt and come to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob. Now keep in mind, when they last left, he blessed them with a prayer for mercy. And he has heard nothing since. There's no texting in this day to get the updates as they go. He has not heard of their meal of fellowship with the governor of the land. And the fact that they were then chased down and, and found with a stolen silver cup, which was planted. Then of Judah offering himself in the place of Benjamin. There's a, a lot to be updated on. But what they tell him in verse 26, Joseph is alive. And not only is Joseph alive, but, but ruler over all of the land. And of course, Jacob does not believe them. It says his heart became numb or, or stunned. Put yourself in his shoes. He has spent the last 22 years believing Joseph was dead. He, he had the evidence, his, his torn and, and bloody coat delivered by the brothers. But they continue on to convince him. They tell him, it says, all the words of Joseph. This is what he, he told them to tell them back in chapter 45, verses 9 through 11. Of how he knew that God had sent them before them to preserve life. And that he is now offering them a land in Goshen. But notice, it's, it's not just the words that convince him. It says that he sees the wagon. When he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, it says. He sees all that Joseph had sent. And, and the story adds up. He is convinced Joseph must be alive. Why else would, would the governor of Egypt make this offer? Friends, this is a, a remarkable transition from when we last left Jacob. When they had departed, he was resigned to the chance that he would bereave, be bereaved, not just of first Joseph and Simeon in prison, but, but Benjamin as well. Now he is rejoicing not only that Benjamin comes back with them, with Simeon, but that Joseph is alive too. He had previously insisted that he would go to the grave mourning Joseph's death, 
And now he goes to see him. So in chapter 46, without delay, Jacob departs Canaan with all that he has. No turning back. But first he has a pit stop in Beersheba. Beersheba is the place where Abram once lived. It's where where Isaac too received the promise that God would be with him and bless him, like his father Abram. And it's where he, Isaac built an altar. So in an act of worship, Israel goes to Beersheba and again offers sacrifices to God on the altar. The right response to such news, not only that his son is alive, but of protection and provision is, is worship. Of course, today we don't offer sacrifices on altars, but we are called to sacrifice in view of God's mercy, to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. Just like with Jacob, the proper response of the invitation to live in the king's land, in the land of the living and reigning son with his protection and provision is worship. It is to offer up our entire selves to God as a living sacrifice. To consider your whole life given to God. That love so amazing, so divine, demands your life, your soul, your all. I wonder, Christian, is, is that kind of worship what marks your response to the gospel? It is here, in this moment of worship, that God speaks to Israel at last again. In verse 3, then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Like I mentioned earlier, this is the first time we have God's direct revelation in speech since Genesis 35. And in fact, it's very similar to what he said there back in Genesis 35. There he said, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you. And I will give the land to your offspring after you. This is, of course, what God had commanded Adam to be fruitful and multiply. And it's what God had previously promised to Abram. Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you again. There it is, a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Saints, again, I I take the time to review what Genesis tells us. To show you God's constancy, his faithfulness, his purposes, stretching all the way back to Abram, have not changed. And note that despite Jacob leaving the promised land, he called Abram into the promised land. He insisted that Isaac stay in the promised land. And now he calls on Jacob to go. Jacob has been living in the land of Canaan as a sojourner because God had promised them and his descendants this land. Like I mentioned previously, God had told Isaac not to go down to Egypt during a famine. So it might seem to Jacob like they're going the wrong direction. But now here in Genesis 46, 3 and 4, God expressly blesses Jacob to go. And not only just to go, but to go with his presence. As God has been with Jacob in Canaan, when he left Canaan to go to, to his family Laban, There with the vision of the staircase of heaven, again God promises to be with Jacob wherever he goes. And he says, it is in fact there, for there I will make you into a great nation. 
Saints, I also want us to notice the connection that God makes here between the command, don't be afraid, there in verse 3, with the promise of His presence in verse 4. I will be with you. It's like how David will later reflect in Psalm 23. You know it well. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will, know, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. Or the promises of Isaiah 41, verse 10. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. This is, in fact, what would called us to worship this morning in Isaiah 43. That he is with us and gathers us. I love the way that Rebecca comforts our daughter Walker when she comes into our room because she's afraid of the dark or scary things in her closet. Of course, she tries to convince her that that there are no monsters. They're just in her imagination. But then she assures her that, that mommy and daddy are with her. But even more, God is with her. You know, mom and dad need a monitor to know what's going on in her room. But, but since God is there in the room with her and everywhere, he always sees her. And God is bigger than even the biggest monster you can imagine. So children, the Bible says in Psalm 56.3, When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. Whatever you are scared of, Because God is with you, He is bigger, you do not need to be afraid. And that might sound like a lesson for children, but it is true for all of us. There are so many things that, like Jacob, we might fear in every season of life. Threats to our well-being and comfort. Threats of the unknown. But God is with us and will be with us. So we can, like Jacob and like Abram before him, have faith, trusting in God's promise of his presence. As Jacob goes, he might even have in mind what God had spoken to Abram in Genesis 15, that that his descendants would be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and become servants for 400 years. We might fear even That God's plans might include affliction. But even that is not contrary to him accomplishing exactly what he has purposed and promised for us. So with the promise of God's presence, he and all his sons and their wives go down to Egypt. Do you remember, saints, the promise that Jesus commissioned his disciples with? The last words of Jesus in the gospel according to Matthew. He says, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. I am with you always. It is true, saints. Even if it seems like in life you're going in the wrong direction, God is with you. He is faithful to accomplish his purpose. You know, for, for Israel at this stage of salvation history, it was to make him into a great nation. For us in the church, it is, it is a different purpose. Under the, the promises of the new covenant, we are being built together into a dwelling place for God. He now dwells with those who are united to Christ by faith. So even when we lose jobs... When we get that diagnosis or experience loss or suffer opposition, we can have the same faith that Jacob has here. That he goes to Egypt immediately with joy, confident that eventually God will accomplish what he promised. He will bring his people back. And of course we know that that's what happens. God knows the end from the beginning. He knows that the right way might not always be the direct way. Certainly that is what we've seen in the life of Joseph, right? That the route to the right hand of Pharaoh was not the most direct route. 
but the refrain, even in the pit of prison, was that the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love. Yes, our route might go through affliction and suffering, but God will accomplish his purpose. So I wonder, saints, can you say that with peace this morning? Whatever you experience, that God is with you, that you know and are comforted by the fact that he will never forsake you or leave you. That God is leading in your life in a way that requires you to trust him. That he won't always give you the reasons why. Your story, if you are in Christ, is a catastrophe. It has a happy ending despite all the twists and turns of the, the puzzling plot. You will eventually make it to the king's land, to be near him, to enjoy the privileges as a child of the king. And it's not just you, but everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord. Our third point, that's what we see in our last section, starting in verse 8 of chapter 46. God promises to build his people. God promises to build his people. What we have in the the last section of our passage this morning, these final verses, is a, a full list of all those who were descended of Jacob and came into Egypt with him. You know, as we read it, it might felt like reading a phone book. But every word of the Bible is given by God for our instruction. You'll notice that this list is grouped by birth mother, the four wives of Jacob. So the first list in 8 through 15 is the children. They're the children of Leah. The second, starting in verse 16 through 18, are the children of Zilpah, that is Leah's maid. The third, starting in verse 19 through 22, are the children of Rachel. Notice that she's the only one who is called wife. And finally, chapter 46, verse 23 through 25, the children of Bilhah, Rachel's maid, the four wives of Jacob. In total, Moses reports 70 people. I'm sure there were actually hundreds of people who went down, including the wives and daughters and all the servants who cared for his, his massive flocks. But that's not what he's listing here. He's listing the descendants, the sons and sons' sons. Now, if you actually go through, and you might want to do this afternoon, add them up, it's not actually 70. And there have been a number of, of solutions offered why maybe Moses is or is not counting this or that. Now, I'm not going to get bogged down in that because I think his point is theological. I think we should hear in that number 70, at the end of verse 27, not a number, but an idea. All of Israel came down to Egypt. Seven is the number of fullness, like the, the seven days of creation. You can compare it to the, the list of nations in, in chapter 10 that spread out after the flood, representing all nations. How many nations was it? Seventy. I think the point is that God provided for the full number and brought the full number in and has been faithful to his promise to build Israel. Abram and Sarah had one son. That one son had two sons, and the, the chosen son of those two had 12 sons, that now numbering 70. God is building his people slowly, but certainly. You know, 70 people might not feel like a nation right now, but it is the fullness of what God has planned for this time with, with far more to follow. Now, of course, saints, God no longer builds his community through the offspring of one man. Or maybe I should put it this way. God no longer builds his people through the physical offspring of one man. No, he, he builds his people, his body, the church, through the spiritual offspring of one man, Jesus Christ. And is a people from all families. Exactly what God had promised to Abram. In you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. 
So the offspring, the offspring of Abraham, Jesus, is gathering a multitude of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And Jesus' multinational family is not gathered by physical birth, but by spiritual rebirth. I think we have hints of that even in this list. When What Moses notes in verse 10, that the sons of Simeon were all by a Canaanite mother. All the children of Leah, it mentions in verse 15, were born outside of the promised land. It says, born to Jacob in Paddan Aram. Or even that, that Joseph's two sons were born to Egyptian mother in Egypt. There in verse 20. You know, when we teach the gospel to others with the aim to persuade, and God gives the gift of, of rebirth, of, of, faint, of faith and repentance, it is because God is still faithful to his promise to build his people. The faithfulness we see on display here in Genesis 46. It might not feel like the church, or our church in particular, is, is all that full. It might feel like the world is always growing stronger. But remember what Jesus himself taught in his parables. His kingdom is like a grain of mustard seed or like leaven in a loaf. Its strength is not in its size. It it grows with a growth that is inevitable, just like the nation of Israel here, because God is faithful. I think... Saints reflecting on what might feel like a phone book of Genesis 46 should fuel our efforts to grow his family. It should prod us to faithfulness and joy in our task of evangelism. That God will continue to cause his family to grow no matter what obstacles seem to be in the way. Consider it even in the book of Genesis. What, that, how God had to overcome physical obstacles like, like barrenness. An age. Likewise, God can still overcome any spiritual obstacle to new birth in Christ. Our task, church, is to be faithful to teach the gospel with the aim to persuade and trust that God will use our work to accomplish His work. Our work is to tell, His work is to save. And our confidence does not rest in our eloquence or our persuasive speech, but the power and faithfulness of God in the gospel that we proclaim. You know, a list similar to the one we have in Genesis 46 shows up again at the end of the Bible. I hope you have your Bibles open. Leave Genesis 46 and, and join with me in the last book of the Bible, Revelation Chapter 7. Revelation chapter 7. When you get to Revelation 7, you will see in verses 5 through 8, the sons of Israel listed once more. This list make up what verse 4 says is not 70, but 144,000 sealed from the sons of Israel. What does this sealing do? Well, according to verses 1 through 3, it is those who will be protected from the threats of four winds. Saints, this is again a theological list. It is not talking about a literal 144,000, but a number of fullness now far more than 70. How do we know that? Well, verse 9, he sees, in fact, a multitude no one could number not 144,000, not just from among the sons of Israel, but from every nation, he says. So the 144,000, the 12,000 from every tribe represent the church in its entirety. So you might ask, why 144,000? Well, this is how one commentator put it. The 12 tribes and the 12 apostles together form the foundational structure of the new Jerusalem. Multiplying 12 by 12 equals 144, representing the entire people of God through the ages. 
Multiplying that figure, 144, by 1,000 reinforces the notion of completeness. You get 144,000 from the, both the tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles, all the people of God, Jew and Gentile. What we have in Revelation 7 is a picture of who comes into this kingdom, the final and ultimate king's land, the full number of both Jews and Gentiles, a multitude no one can count. It might not feel full now, but saints, on that day, it will be an innumerable number. Genesis 46, then, is an a early iteration of God's faithfulness to his promise, the promise that reaches its climax in Revelation 7. Saints, the, the story that God is working out has a happy ending. Not only in the story of Israel, but most clearly in the, the resurrection and reign of Christ and all those who are in Christ. Though it might seem at times that we might meet some terrible, impending, and very plausible and probable doom, God is faithful. The salvation that we have in Christ is absolutely secure. He has and will provide everything we need for our journey there. He has and will be with us, present to keep and protect us. And we know for certain Jesus will bring all his children to him in his heavenly home. So we can trust that our sovereign God is faithful to provide all that is necessary for all of his people. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we trust you this morning. Lord, we trust that you, our sovereign God, are faithful to provide everything we need for life and godliness for our journey to our home. Father, we pray that we would would put off the love of money and the anxiety that is so typical to our fallen world and our sinful hearts. Lord, knowing with confidence that you will provide all that we need, that we might seek first your kingdom and the righteousness of God. Lord, we pray that our confidence on the way would be that you are with us, that you will never leave us nor forsake us, that you will keep and protect us by your great power. Lord, we pray you would lift our hopes this morning to that coming day when the 144,000 will be gathered with you forever. Lord, to sing of your praises and to enjoy the perfect provision that we have forever in the King's land. It's in Christ's name that we pray all this. Amen.